Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Well, shalom, shalom. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana. How is everybody doing? Uh, Depending on, I guess, what part of the country you're in, spring is upon us. Uh, Down here in south Louisiana, um, this is what is typically known as uh, false spring, which means that we're probably going to get uh, at least one more you know, small frost or something like that uh, coming up in the next few weeks. We might, we might not. Right now, everyone who gardens, their biggest uh, question is, uh, do we plant tomatoes yet? <laughs> do we plant tomatoes yet? And uh, nobody knows. And so some brave souls will do that and will, um, you know, will hopefully avoid the, the freeze if we have one coming, and uh, others will wait, and um, some don't garden, so they don't even care. But uh, it's a great, uh, a great time after the ice apocalypse, the snow apocalypse, um, a couple weeks ago. The weather's warming up; it's beautiful. I hope it's beautiful where you are. Uh, I hope that you are you're enjoying uh, the beginnings of spring, the rumblings of spring, new life. Um, we had our first. We have a small flock of sheep. Uh, on our farm, and we had our first baby born today. I was out and about, and my wife texted me and said, we have a baby, so I'm really excited about that. Can't wait to get home and uh, and check on her, uh, mommy and baby. And uh, so, yeah, things are things are great. Uh, spring, spring is a wonderful, wonderful time that we all enjoy. So, hey, uh, I just want to say welcome to everybody who's listening. If you're uh, catching us for the first time, hey, come on in, grab a cup of coffee or whatever your favorite beverage is, have a seat and let's chat for a while. Um, thank you for joining us. And uh, I am the pastor of Out of Ashes Ministries in Southwest Louisiana. Um, wonderful group of people. And so if you're listening for the first time, welcome to the Image Bearers Radio family, the IBR family. We like acronyms around here, I-B-R-O-A-M. Uh, and uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the conversation. If you're new to us, um, we live stream our Shabbat services every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Central. Uh, our website is outofashesministries.org. We also simulcast to Facebook and YouTube. We also have a free mobile app. Uh, if you look up the Share Faith app, you can find us in there. And uh, so find us however you can. Jump on this Shabbat, say hello, and, uh, and we'd love to meet you. Uh, for all of our longtime listeners, thank you guys always so much for being such a great community and for, um, you know, for just supporting and, and for being involved. Uh, we love you guys very, very, very much. And so before we get into today's episode, let's go to the Father in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King, Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, we are so incredibly humbled by your love and your graciousness. We ask, Father, that you bless this time that we have together today as we dive into your word and as we seek to become better bearers of your image.
All right. So the last couple of weeks, we so let me kind of update everybody and kind of get you up to speed to, as to where we are and where we're going. Um, we began doing kind of a introduction to the Gospels several weeks ago, uh, where we talked about the five major Jewish responses to Hellenism. Many of you remember that conversation. One of my favorite uh, sections of time, especially of biblical history to study, is what we call the intertestamental period, or the silent years, as I grew up uh, knowing it as, which were anything but silent, uh, with the Maccabean revolt, uh, Greek uh, in, in you know Greek uh, domination uh, into Roman domination, and uh, the rising and falling of kings and the priestly kings and all these, just a fascinating, fascinating uh, point in history that we may not, in Christianity, we may not know a whole, whole lot about. Uh, So I would encourage you to go back and check those out. We are going to get back into the Gospels. Uh, We are going to um, have Kyle back, and uh, we're going to have some Gospel discussions, specifically working through Matthew. Uh, And we've been doing that on Shabbat. And so if you're interested in that, catch our Shabbat services, and they're all archived on YouTube and on our website as well. Um, But we've, we've gotten into the weekly Parsha. Um, so for those of you that don't know, most of you do, but for those of you that don't, um, there is a, uh, a reading cycle that goes throughout the year where the Torah is broken up into portions or parashot. Uh, each parasha is uh, a few chapters long, and we read through the entire Torah, the five books of Moses, every year. Uh, sometimes, like this week, uh, most of the time there are single portions. Sometimes there are double portions because of the way the calendar lays out, uh, the, the Jewish calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. And uh, so uh, these, uh, and then, I'm sorry, there's the, so there's the parasha, and then there's the haftarah, which is not half Torah, haftarah, uh, which is a reading from the prophets. And we generally read through the prophets every three years, the prophets and writings. And so these last few weeks, we've been um, in the end of Exodus, the latter half of Exodus, Shemot, where we have been uh, talking about uh, the Exodus. We've been talking about the, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Uh, and then we have been talking the last couple of weeks about after Sinai, kind of post-Sinai. What does that look like? And it's been fascinating. I, I love this section of Scripture. Um, those of you that have listened for any amount of time, you know that I'm a, a student of Joseph Good. And I love all things tabernacle and temple. I'm by no means uh, anywhere even approaching close to Joe's knowledge or you know experience studying these things. I'm only very, very, very uh, shallow in my knowledge. But gosh, I just get so fired up about the tabernacle and temple, um, not for the sake of a building per se, uh, but for what they represent. And just as a side note, um, the, the Jewish people as a whole um, they are not pro-temple, those that are pro-temple, they're not pro-temple just for the sake of a building, but because of what it represents and what it means. And as I always say, um, we, we, uh, we as Christians, uh, we as uh, Messianic Torah believers, we can say all day long, we're the temple, we're the temple, uh, so we don't need the other temple, or Yeshua replaced the temple, or we can say all those things, and that's fine and good, however you come down on those things. However, we cannot be the temple if we don't know how a temple operates and what the purpose is, and, and what, what it means, and what it teaches us. And so that's the reason why I love the tabernacle and temple so much. I think it's, it's hyper important um, that before we start, because, you know, as, as believers, as Christians, um, most of us have a, a just a very, if we have any understanding of the tabernacle and temple at all, it's very cursory, it's very, very shallow. Um, and so what we do generally is we take like the menorah, 
We take the menorah and we go, well, this is what it looked forward to, right? This is what it would, this is what it means. It speaks of Yeshua, Jesus, and his, and he's the light of the world, right? And we quote Bible, we quote, um, gospel, excuse me, uh, verses, uh, generally without a whole lot of context. And, and so we, we, we're in the business and we spend our time, um, focusing on the parts of the tabernacle or the temple and what they mean to us or for us. And I think that does some disservice. Uh, actually, I think it does a lot of disservice to both the institution of the tabernacle. Um, number two, it does a disservice to the people of ancient Israel that were first receiving these commandments, building this structure and meeting with God in this structure. Um, so it does a massive disservice to that. And it does a disservice to us as um, as people who who are supposed to love this God and, and want to worship him the way he wants to. Uh, we're supposed to want to, to seek him and love him and follow after him um, based on his desire, not on our desire, right? And so it does a disservice to, to us as well. I mean, I tell these the anecdotal stories all the time, but they're true. I don't know how many times I have seen, or, and I know, you know, you've seen it too. I used to be, you know, like this. I used to think like this. And go, well, yeah, I'm, you know, praise God on a Sunday morning because I'm the temple. Um, and, you know, and God's presence lives inside of me instead of just in a building, you know, and I have direct access to, uh, to in, in our thoughts, you know, into Shekinah, into the Shekinah, and then go out to eat after church and, and eat pig, you know? And so th- that's a, a really low hanging fruit kind of thing. You know, it's a really easy thing to, to, to poke at and to point at. But when you think about it, it's think about what we're we're, we're saying, right? We're we're putting in our bodies, quote unquote, the temple, things that were absolutely prohibited from the actual temple, and so just in a in a really you know shallow and elementary kind of way, we it's important for us um, to to study the the temple and tabernacle because of its importance, because it is the house of God, and if we do a disservice to God's house, then we don't respect His house. Um, it's the place that he said, right? Build me a Mishkan. We read it last week. Build me a Mishkan, uh, Vishakanti, that I may dwell with you. And that's been God's uh, whole idea ever since creation was that he wanted to dwell with man. He wanted to partner with man. He wanted to bring his kingdom. Uh, he wanted man to establish and spread his kingdom, Hashem's kingdom on the earth. And so it does a disservice to the temple itself because uh, the, the, as we read through these parashot, so we had uh, last week we had uh, Kitisa, before that we had Tetzaveh, before that we had Terumah, before that we had uh, Mishpatim, uh, and before that we had Yitro, right? So from the giving of the commandments, Yitro, and then uh, Mishpatim, the judgments right after Sinai, and then after that we had um, Terumah, which is the bringing of the offerings, the free will offerings, uh, to in order to to begin to build, and then uh, we have uh, Tetzave, and then after that we have uh, Kitisa, which was last week, and then this week we are in uh, Vayakel. So all of these parshot have to deal with the building of the tabernacle. When you study the building of the tabernacle, and this is Jewish wisdom as well. This is not just something that Joe came up with. The tabernacle and the temple are seen as microcosms micro, uh, of the cosmos, of the, of the, the cosmos. I say it like this. When, when Israel was instructed to build the tabernacle, 
what they're doing and what Hashem is asking them to do is to recreate Eden. So if you take Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2, preferably, uh, 1, 2, and 3, actually, you could, and you can superimpose Genesis 1, 2, and 3 on, uh, on we've talked about this, on Abraham, on, on Noah, on Abraham, on Isaac and Jacob, on Joseph. Uh, you, can, you can superimpose the Garden of Eden on all of those stories because it's all about recreating Eden, especially when you see the building of the tabernacle. These Edenic themes just jump off the page. I mean, they're just absolutely amazing. God was asking Israel to recreate Eden. Um, and, and so, you know, this is not just an Old Testament thing, Old Testamenty thing. If you go to the end of Revelation, right, chapters 20 and 21, specifically chapter 21, um, Mike Clayton says all the time, where's the beginning of Scripture? And everybody says, Genesis 1. And he goes, no, it's, it's Revelation 21. Because what you have in Revelation 21 is the garden. It's a return to the garden. And so the whole story, the whole biblical narrative centers around this idea of sacred space, the garden, establishing God's kingdom, bearing his image, being priests, and, and all these things. It, the language is absolutely consistent throughout the entirety of Scripture. And so it's fundamentally important that we talk about, that we think about these things. Um, I have some great friends that teach on other different things. Uh, I have some great friends at Anamkara Ministries in uh, uh, Monastery in Washington State that teach character, and they are all about, and they do a phenomenal job uh, teaching about um, about character, uh, and that's so vitally important in the in the lives of you know in, in all of us. Um, and I have friends that teach on you know on other different things and and focus on different parts of Scripture. Um, I have a love for this, and I have a passion for this part. So I appreciate you kind of joining along, and I hope that I prompt you to think a little bit and, and, I, and encourage you to study a little bit more about tabernacle and temple. Uh, I may have mentioned it last week, but if I didn't, I want to just uh, kind of encourage you uh, to go to the Temple Institute website. Uh, if you've never been there, if you don't know what that is, the Temple Institute is an organization in Jerusalem uh, that is working to prepare for the building of the Third Temple. Now, if you don't agree with the Third Temple being built or whatever, I'm not getting into that debate. Um, what's, what, I, what they're valuable, what I want you to get from them uh, is the historical understanding, the teachings, uh, the, the, the understanding that they have of the way the temple operates. Because here's, here's what my, the, kind of the crux of today's podcast is about. The bottom line is that we, going back to my last point, we have had a tendency to look at the tabernacle, and even those of you that have studied the tabernacle, um, I've heard these teachings my whole life. You know, you study the, the altar and, you know, say, well, you know, we have to sacrifice ourselves before we get to God. And then you, you study the laver uh, and you say, you know, we have to be washed and cleaned and mikvahed, baptized. And then, you know, we, there's a progression into the Holy of Holies. We've done all that. And that's wonderful. And I love those, those, those stories and those pictures that the tabernacle gives us. What I'm, what I'm asking you to do as, as fellow, you know, believers and, and chasers after God and image bearers, what I want to ask you to do is, is let's put aside for just a little while the meanings and the foreshadowings of all the things in the tabernacle. And let's spend a little bit of time actually taking a look at what, how it functioned and what it meant, again, to, to the people that are there receiving these commandments. So we said that we do a disservice when we don't study the tabernacle. We do a disservice to the tabernacle itself, the institution of the temple, because it is God's house and it is a recreation of Eden and all the things that that means. 
We talked about that last week. Secondly, it does a disservice to the people who were responsible for receiving these instructions from Moshe, the Tavnit or the blueprint that Moshe received up on Sinai, the artisans, the craftsmen, uh, Bezalel and Aholiav, the, the master craftsmen that were charged with, with kind of coordinating and running the, the building of all the things, the women who, who brought uh, offerings and who helped with the curtains and the, all these things. We do a disservice to those people because when those people saw the menorah, they didn't think Jesus or they didn't think Yeshua. They had no idea what would be coming later. And so what they saw was something that was for them and something that was, um, something that was, that was meaningful for, for them to be able to connect with Hashem, for them to be able to connect with God. And, and so we can't discount that. Just like way back in our Genesis series, right? We talked about this, that we, we subvert um, we do an end around the original audience and the original writers and interpreters whenever we just pull stuff out of context and, and only talk about what it means for us. And that's great, and that's part of, part of a biblical interpretation and part of keeping faith alive. But what we've not done a real good job at is going, what did it mean to them, and why was this important to them? And so surely to the ancient audience, to the ancient Israelites, the tabernacle had symbolism. Absolutely it did. And we want to know what that symbolism was. But to me, more importantly, it had a function. And that function is what's, what's, what I really want to drive at and what I really want to encourage you to, to whet your appetite uh, and curiosity for is what are the function of these things? Why do they do things? Why did Hashem set things up the way he did? And why was he super, super uh, careful about how things were done in his house? And then after we get that foundation kind of laid or relayed, then we can talk about, well, how does that apply and where can we pull things out for our lives today? Because it does apply. I'll re- re- repeat uh, Dr. Walton's uh, famous quote that I love so much. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. And so we have to be respectful of the people to which scripture was written. And thirdly, it does kind of dovetailing in, it does a disservice to us whenever we don't study the tabernacle in depth and the temple in depth. It does a disservice to us because we, if we don't understand the, the, the original intent and the original meaning, we can make anything mean anything, right? If we don't understand how things worked and, and what was the purpose and, and, uh, and, and if we just start to allegorize and metaphorize, that's probably not a word, but if we make allegory and meta- metaphor out of everything, um, that's you know fine, and, and we can do that with, with a lot of scripture. But if we, if we don't first have a concrete foundation, then, then those, those allegories and those metaphors can mean anything we want them to mean, right? So it's the danger of someone who says, I don't, I don't need a community and I don't need a teacher um, the Holy Spirit is my teacher. Well, that's fine, and I believe that. I mean, the Scripture says that He will lead us into all truth, absolutely. Um, however, if, if we are, are isolated and we are segregated away from other people, um, then we can get off into some, some things that are, that are detrimental to us, and so we don't have a community to kind of go, hey, like, come back this way a little bit, you know, come back into some balance, and, and, and we can get off on our own and we can get on tangents and things that are, not, that are not healthy and that are not helpful. 
the, the reason for the tabernacle was not only for God to have a place to dwell, not only for, for God's Shekinah to dwell as his desire, but also it was a communal, it was a community institution. So there's not, you know, we, again, we kind of, we, we seek and we want this individual faith and this individual um, relationship with God. And yet it's about community. It's about doing things together. And so when we don't have the tabernacle and sacred space in its proper context and understanding it well and kind of mooring or tying ourselves to it, hitching ourselves to it, then we get off into things that I think the Bible really doesn't understand and doesn't, doesn't know about. I said hitching, and it just brought up that memory of, um, of the, the pastor, I can't remember who it was now, who talked about unhitching from the, the Old Testament. Um, it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. Yes, the Bible is living, and yes, faith needs to be updated, and it needs to keep up with culture and all those kinds of things, or else it dies. And we see the Jewish people doing that, and, and I think that we have that ability to do that as well. And I'm not against any of those things. What my, I want to caution everyone, though, is that if we don't have a good foundation, then the updates to the way we think may not stay in line with what was there. So the message doesn't change so much as the method. And so if we don't understand the original message, then the message does change as we go on. So... Um, let me let me read a couple of passages to you uh, in getting, I'm kind of ranting a little bit, so excuse me. Um, but we're in in, uh, in Vayikel, in uh, Parsha Vayikel. This is Shemot 35, Exodus chapter 35. And this is what, this is what we're talking about. Uh, it says in verse 1, Moshe assembled. So Vayikel, it means um, Vayikel uh, Kahal, which is a, an assembly uh, called out, you know, gathering which is the, in the Greek, we get uh, ecclesia, uh, or church. Um, this is Vayakel, and he assembled. Uh, and so it says, Moshe assembled, listen, the entire assembly of the children of Israel and said to them, these are the things Hashem commanded to do them, right? So then we're going to have uh, the Sabbath being talked about next. And, and, but I want to, this. He, called the, he gathered the entire assembly, right? All of Bnei Israel. And, and gathered everybody together. Everybody's together. Everybody's there. Everybody's listening. Now, in that assembly, did some people disagree with maybe the way things were done? Well, yeah, we have evidence of that. You know, like, take us back to Egypt so we can die there. You know, and all this stuff. There's people that have differences of opinion. They have differences of, of preference and, and all of these things. And yet they were all together. I want to ask you one question. What would it look like if the image-bearing body of Messiah was all together, what if we were assembled together? And, and how does that, why is that so hard to achieve? Why is it so hard to achieve unity? Part of the reason I think it's so hard to achieve is because we think of unity as uniformity. And the religious systems that we have have almost, um, they've undergirded that. They've stabilized that type of, of uh, they've systematized even and weaponized to a point. That idea that, that if we're gonna be together in assembly or a fellowship, then that means we have to look alike, act alike, talk alike, worship alike, read alike, think alike, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And this idea of unity being uniformity is really toxic. It's really toxic, We've got so much division in the body of Messiah 
that we, we're cutting ourselves off at the knees before we even start, before we even begin to make an impact, or a real impact. I mean, a real worldwide kingdom-establishing impact. We're, we're stopped in our tracks before just because we can't get together in our, own, in our own selves. We're fighting each other, and the enemy outside is raging and is taking ground because we can't get together and stay together. Talk about this more after the break. We'll be back in just a minute. All right, everybody, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. So we're in Exodus chapter 35, uh, 35 Shemot 35, Parshat Vayakel. And the first verse talks about Moses assembling the entire uh, assembly of, uh, of B'nai Israel, of the children of Israel. And so I know that unity is talked about a lot uh, in, in, our, you know, in religion, in, in Protestantism. Uh, it's talked about a lot. And yet, again, we can't get over this hurdle of uniformity. And so if you're going to be a Baptist, then you have to completely believe what the Baptists believe, or you're going to be this or that or whatever, uh, you know, the Pentecostals or whatever. And, and in the, I don't just want to pick on the, on the you know, Protestant uh, church, because those of us in the Messianic or the Torah, Hebrew roots, whatever we call this movement, um, are even more guilty than those in the churches. Um, when, when I was in church, I had friends from the Baptist church. I had friends from the Catholic church across the street. I had friends that were full gospel and friends that were uh, Episcopalian. And we had friends that were all over the place. And yet how many, how many times have we divided in the Hebrew roots community, in the Messianic community, how many times have we divided over the, the smallest things, the most, just the most insane disagreements or the most insane little things? Oh, well, that you keep this calendar and we keep that calendar. Oh, well, you say the name like this and we say the name like this. Oh, well, you, you speak Hebrew in your services and we don't. Uh, or, you know, the, it, we, we just disagree over the, the... Not that these things are not important. The calendar is important. The name is important. All these things are important. But when are we going to come to a point as the body of Messiah, as the, the kingdom, as the image bearers of God where we can be secure enough in our own beliefs and our own understanding, not that we can't be challenged, but that we're not offended when we are challenged. So that if you believe that his name should be said this way, then I am completely fine with you doing that. But you have to be fine with me doing it the way I have researched and I have studied and I have prayed through and I feel good about. If you don't believe in pronouncing the name, the Tetragrammaton at all, I have to be okay with you doing that and you have to be okay with me doing whatever I do, right? On the calendar stuff, I tell our congregation, you can follow whatever calendar you want and still be a, a full-fledged you know, part of our fellowship. The only thing that I ask is that if your festivals, uh, your dates don't line up with ours, um, we follow the, the Hillel calendar, invite me for yours, like what, because the festivals are supposed to be think, places where in time where people come together 
It's about togetherness. It's about community. But we are so individualistic and we are so in, you know, individual faith. We, we've just, we have that programming and it creates issues for us. And yet the tabernacle was about bringing people together into God's presence. And so I just want to challenge you. We got to lay down some of our sacred cows. We, we've got to slaughter some of those sacred cows. We've got we've to decide what hills we're going to die on a little bit better. There's a story that a good friend of mine told me of someone in their congregation, a husband and wife, that they've been believers for a long time. They, they found Torah and started, started observing Shabbat, et cetera, et cetera. And they disagreed on the way the name was pronounced, I think is the way it goes, on the, the way the Tetragrammaton was pronounced. And so the husband moved out of the house into a, an apartment, an adjacent apartment that's on their property. And now they're still married, still go to fellowship together as far as I know. And yet they live in two different places, two different uh, structures, buildings. She lives in the house. He lives in an apartment in the backyard because they can't agree on how the, the name is to be pronounced. And that's an exaggerated, you know, that's an exaggerated uh, illustration or example. But how many people have left fellowship, have left relationships, have left people that loved them and cared about them for these, these little things that, that really we can, we can work them out and still be together. We can work them out and still be together. So many people in our Hebrew roots movement, in our messianic movement, divide, 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 divide until they're all alone. And Torah is not supposed to, to divide you from, the, from people of faith. It's not supposed to divide you and make you some hermit. What good are we if we're all, all cloistered out in our own little areas and we never actually come into contact with anybody else? So Moshe assembled, assembled the entire children of Israel. And I love that the next part of this passage is about the Sabbath. Why about the Sabbath? Well, in last week's Parsha, or in the, in the previous Parsha, which is Kitisa, in, in Kitisa, we have commandments for the Shabbat as well. The Shabbat keeps coming up over and over and over in this building of the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. It's a re-establishment re, uh, of creation. When Israel is told to build the tabernacle, they, they are, re, they are, they are uh, redoing, re-rehearsing creation, the week of creation, where the, 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 the top of creation, the edifice of creation was the Shabbat because Hashem rested because he saw that everything was tov me'od, was very good, right? And so the Sabbath is intricately tied to the tabernacle, but not for a, not for a religious meaning. Um, two weeks ago, we had Jeff Morton here, and um, I hope you caught that either the live stream or the YouTube video after. Uh, it's on our YouTube page, and um, uh, and you can find it through Jeff Morton as well. But Jeff talked about how the Bible for him is not religious, and I love that that presses me a little bit because I grew up in religion, so it's hard to think about the Bible as anything but religious. But it's pressing me to think about these things in a different way. To these Israelite people, the Sabbath is not something that's religious. It's a way of life. It's not, what I mean by religious is that, well, it's in our religious box. We can put it over here, and then we can pick it up when we want. And Jeff says the Torah, it, God doesn't give you the Torah in a suitcase. In other words, it's not in a suitcase you just carry around and just put it down over here and then walk away from it. And also, it's not in a suitcase, so it can't be like weaponized, Right? Or it's not supposed to be. 
And so, and I love that idea because we compartmentalize our religious lives from the rest of our lives. We have a tendency to do that. And it's easy for us to do that. It's kind of how we were raised. And yet the, this, the, the Sabbath, the Shabbat is not religious in that sense. It is a part of their everyday life and it harkens back to creation. And so when we, when we observe Shabbat, whenever we recognize Shabbat on Friday evening uh, to Saturday evening, when we do that, whatever we do, during that Shabbat, creation should always be in our minds. We are recreating Eden. We're recreating the garden. We're reestablishing um, the divine presence. We're reestablishing kingdom authority uh, and the spreading of the kingdom. And we're elevating ourselves to that place where we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where the Torah elevates the mundane, right? It, it's this, we don't, we don't only rest on Shabbat from the week that we had, we also rest on Shabbat for the work that is still coming, that is still coming to be done. We have work that still needs to be done. And so we, we rest on Shabbat as a pivot point where we reflect on last week and we look forward to the following, the following week. And so when you see these, these mentions of Shabbat, um, and I don't also, you know, when we, when we study Shabbat and when we study what it means and what it's about, we have a tendency to pick out. So in last Parsha, there's a section on Shabbat. And so we pick that out of the, of the chapter and we, we just pull it out and we say, well, this is what Shabbat is about. This is how we're to observe it. And then we come over to chapter 35 and we pick out these two verses, um, which it just says, on six days work shall be done. On the seventh day is holy for you, a day of complete rest for Hashem. So it's a day of worship for Hashem. Um, Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle the fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And we go, oh, well, we see, this is, this is what the Sabbath's about. No, these are ways to observe the Sabbath. These are how Hashem asked us to observe the Sabbath and things, boundaries to protect the Shabbat because it is holy and to protect us because it's holy. And yet these are not religious. If you, if you do this and do this and do this right, then you've kept the Shabbat. One of the hardest things it is for, I think, most, most people coming into Torah from a Gentile you know, direction is, is the idea of doing things, quote unquote, right. And, and what is that saying? Perfect is the enemy of good or whatever that saying is. We, we have this thing that, you know, we, uh, we want to do it right. And if I can't do it right, then I'm not going to do it at all. That's religious, folks. That's religion. And that is not what Hashem desires. That is not what the Torah is about. That is not what this whole thing is, is about. And so um, these, the, the Shabbat is, a, is to be a way of life. It's not supposed to just be stuff that we do. And as we're doing the things that we are commanded to do on Shabbat, we are to always be thinking about creation. Um, the, this parsha, uh, Vayakel, it moves on to the contributions uh, for the temple and then the construction. In verse 10, it says, Every wise-hearted person among you shall come and make everything that Hashem has commanded. So I want to talk a little bit about the craftsmen uh, that, were, that were used and the craftsmanship that was used in the, the construction of, of God's house. We find in Exodus chapter 31, uh, Shemot 31, this is in Parsha Kitisa. Um, in chapter 31, verse 1, it says, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, See, I have called by the name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, I have filled him with a godly spirit, with wisdom, insight, and knowledge, and with every craft to weave designs, to work with gold, silver, and copper, stone cutting for setting, and wood carving to perform every craft. And I behold, I have assigned with him Aholiad, the son of Ahasamach, 
of the tribe of Dan, and I have endowed the heart of every wise-hearted person with wisdom, and they shall make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the Ohelmoed, the ark of the uh, covenant, the testimonial tablets, and the cover, the kapora that is on it, and the utensils of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure manure and all, its, all of its utensils, the incense altar, the burnt altar, uh, uh, burnt offering altar, excuse me, and all of its utensils, the laver and its base, the knit vestments, the sacred vestments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, th- this focus on craftsmen. Here's like a here's a really, you know, incredible thing to think about. So this is the house of God, right? This is the house of God. Hashem invites Moshe up onto the mountain, and he says, "I want to show you a blueprint. I want to show you uh, the way that I want you to construct this. I want you to do it exactly like this." And so. Remember that it's God that's asking for this. It's not the people. This is God's, this is God's design. He's the superintendent. He is the, you know, he's the supervisor. Uh, he's the one that is calling the shots. He's the foreman, right? He's the contractor. And so he says, I want you to build it exactly like this. Now, Moshe, go down, and there's going to be people that I'm going to give gifts to. Now, what I always, the way I always kind of thought about this was, um, again, we've, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, you have this heaven down to earth trajectory. Everything in scripture moves from heaven down to earth. I don't know what background you came from, 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 but for me, everything always had an upward trajectory. We were always trying to go to heaven. We were always trying to get to heaven. We were always trying to, you know, it was that way. Everything that was real and that was holy and that was right was in heaven. And this old world was just falling apart. And yet in scripture, everything is coming down here. Everything is moving this way. Um, God steps out of time and, and creates a place where he can dwell with his people in, in the beginning of Genesis, right? Um, that You have the, the, the commandments, the Torah, the 10 commandments come down from heaven by the finger of God and are written on stone tablets, right? They come down from heaven. This tabernacle blueprint, this, this tavnit for God's house, God's dwelling place, comes down from heaven and is manifest, is, is made real here on this earth. So the, the, in my thinking, you know, if God wanted a place to live and he's perfect and he's holy, then why didn't he just provide himself a place to live? The tabernacle doesn't fall from heaven. It's not that Moshe and the children of Israel wake up one day and all of a sudden Ah, uh, there's this glowing, gleaming, you know, shining uh, tent structure that's sitting in front of them. No, God engaged with the people in order to build his house. And then he put boundaries and commandments to protect the cleanliness of his house from the people. And I've always kind of thought about this, like as I picture these scenes in my head, as you have these two guys, right, um, Aholiav and, uh, uh, and Bezalel. You have Bezalel and Aholiav, and these guys are just kind of sitting in their tent, you know, letting the day pass, you know, wiping their brow from the heat or whatever. They're just kind of chilling. They're kind of hanging out, whatever. And all of a sudden, wham, they get zapped with this, you know, with the spirit of God and this holy wisdom and, and all these things. And that may be true, and that may be how it happened. There may, be, there may have been something that happened to them that gave them a higher degree of understanding or of wisdom. But what if God saw Bezalel and Aholiav, these, these two men, that maybe their, maybe their fathers were craftsmen, maybe their grandfathers before them, maybe their great-grandfathers before them, 
Maybe they had spent their entire lives perfecting their trade. Maybe they had worked hours and hours and hours. Maybe they had gotten outside learning so that they could do their stuff better, that they could produce materials that were, that were more elegant and more, uh, more accurate and more appropriate. What if they had, had dedicated themselves not to what we would call quote-unquote ministry, but to their trade? And what if God looked down and said, that's a couple of guys I can use. And so I'm going to partner with them to build my house. This thought is not unprecedented, right? Because we see the same thing in Avram Avinu. In Avram Avinu, we see a man that God says, he has the chutzpah to, to take care of, of the people around him, and that's a guy that I can partner with. That's a man that I can partner with. He saw the same thing with Noah. God said, that's a guy I can partner with. And so I, I bring up this point just to ask, how many of us are waiting for God to endow us with some special gift or some special wisdom? And maybe it's God that's waiting for us to invest in that education we've always desired to have, or God's waiting for us to, to actually, you know, want to be the best we can be at whatever trade or skill or whatever that is. What if God is, is, is looking for some people who have dedicated themselves to being the absolute best in their field that they could be and not be complacent with just like, well, I'm just doing this thing, you know, until I get to heaven, uh, you know, and I'm just doing this job, you know, like we have a tendency to think that the people up on the platform on Shabbat or on Sunday morning are the, the experts. And, and there's this culture in religion that um, as a youth, longtime youth pastor, I remember, you know, the, the feeling was even amongst uh, our students and, and amongst the ministry, amongst the church. I mean, when you had kids that got out of high school or, or you know, got their GED and went to a trade school, the, the feeling was kind of always like, oh, well, you know, they, they kind of missed their potential or, you know, why don't they do something better or whatever. And then you had kids that graduated valedictorian, whatever, and it was like, man, those kids are, you know, yes, that's the, they're the, they're the deal. And then you had those kids that were surrendering to full-time ministry. And it was like, man, if you had kids out of your church that were going to ministry, going into full-time ministry, then you felt like you were really doing kingdom work. And what I want to suggest to all of you, whether you're young and you're listening to this or whether you're older in your life and you're listening to this, what I want to suggest to you is that ministry is not the be-all, end-all. It is an admirable Thing. And if God has called you to ministry, to pastoring or to, uh, you know, to shepherding a group or, or whatever it might be, then you should do that with all of your heart and you should get the education and you should study and you should get mentors and you should, you should learn and be the best that you can possibly be. But if God has not called you to do that, then God has called you to do something else and not something less than. So to the secretary who's out there, who's listening and who, you know, who feels like, well, I'm just a secretary. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That secretarial position is you are being God in that workplace. You are being the hands and feet of God in that workplace. And it is God expects you, that Joe doesn't expect you. God expects you to develop your skills and to develop your education and to develop your passion so that you can be the best, you can have that office humming and working 
as efficiently and as as prosperously for your boss or your, your board or whatever it is that possibly can be. You need to be the sanctuary. You need to be the place of order in that office. If, if Whatever capacity you find yourself in, you need to make sure that you are educating yourself, that you are growing, that you are always pushing yourself to be the best. There, again, we're fighting against kind of some, some of us may be fighting against um, old attitudes and uh, the the sense that that some have that I've experienced is that well being you know really pushing and and going for what I want and 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 really chasing after my passion um, is selfish and is, is kind of arrogant and God doesn't like that and so it's better if I just kind of do my thing and lay low because I don't want to be selfish and arrogant and I don't want to put my desires before God let me tell you something how many of us have, or I'll ask you this question, how many of us have sat in a season of indecision when we just were waiting to hear from God, waiting to hear from God, waiting to hear from God? I want to know where God said, where, where to go. I want to go to the exact place God said at the exact time to do the exact thing so I can be in, exactly in the center of God's will. That's toxic. That's toxic thinking. It's not toxic to think I want to be pleasing to God and I want to be where God wants me, absolutely. But how many of us, how many of you listening out there, I know I have wasted years waiting to hear from God instead of tapping into the desires of my heart that the word of God says he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean what, it can mean what God, uh, what you, that, that God will give you uh, something that you will desire. God will give you something that you will desire. But it also can mean that whatever is in your heart that you already desire, the thing that you love, the thing that you're passionate about, maybe that was already God-given. And maybe God is waiting for you to tap into that thing and take it and run with it. So Bezalel and Aholiab, are, are they these know-nothing guys that just kind of these knuckle-draggers are just kind of hanging out? These, you know, just, they're just kind of useless and they're just doing their thing. And all of a sudden, God just picks them out at random and slaps some godly wisdom on them and fills them with his spirit and goes, now you're an expert craftsman. Or is it people that had the gift and the training already and they developed it and God took notice? The other kind of toxic thought we have is that, well, God uses nobodies. And God does use nobodies. Hallelujah. Baruch Hashem. Thank God that he uses nobodies. He uses people that are broken. People that have almost or have ruined themselves. God pulls people like that out of the pit and turns them around and uses them. Hallelujah. And I am thankful for that. I love seeing that. But what that also has done is created in some of us this idea that, well, if, if I'm too good, maybe God won't use me because it's on my own power. You think the desires you have, you think the gifts you have, you think that the intelligence and the work ethic and the desires you have are from you in the first place? All things come from God. He is the creator of all things. That means if your children have a love for music and you want them to be in ministry, back off and let them pursue that passion with everything in them and support them. Because that passion is God-given. It doesn't matter what you want or what your church thinks is the, the optimum and the, the best you know, field for them to go in. It doesn't matter. God has already given them the desires that are in their heart. 
God has already given them the things that they that they have. It's not that it's not only that God will, you know, say, well, I really like this, God, and eventually God will give it to you. It's that maybe the things that you already desire, God placed in there when you were born, before you were born. He looked out over time and over 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 today and, and or over fifty years ago, whenever you were born, and he said, The world needs a them. The world needs a Jack or a Joe or a Nancy or a Barbara or or, or the, the world needs of them. I'm going to specifically design them and I'm going to give them these incredible passions and desires and gifts so that they can go make an impact doing that. And how many times do we abort the plan of God for quote unquote something better? Bezalel and Aholiab could have wanted to be priests. They could have, well, well, no God, if I can't be a priest, then I don't, I'm not going to do anything at all. And yet what did they do? They worked metal and stone and they were the best of the best of the best. And God said, that's some people I can partner with. So as we close, what area of your life are you underdeveloped that you need to pick up the ball and start running? What area of your life do you want God to notice that, God, I am taking the passion I've always had and the desire I've always had, and I'm working on fulfilling that. Help me, and God will go, I can get beside you. Let's do this together. Let's do this great thing that you desire. Let's do it together. Let me show you how it's done. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I love you very much. Until next week, shalom, shalom. Shalom. 